0: Count among the outlaws. He said, come follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. Did you know the world's top three major religions all are expecting the soon arrival of a Messiah? That's right, all three. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Not only expecting, but all three believe it could be imminent anytime. Let's not forget about the Christians also have the expectation of the rise of a false messiah, the Antichrist. The arrival of these religions, messiahs, will be nothing like the world has ever seen, according to all three religions. Is that coincidence? What's going on here? Are they the same figure? Are they different? What are the similarities? To help us figure this out, we have back again acclaimed apologist, Abdu Murray. Abdu was raised a Lebanese Muslim until he took a nine-year historical, philosophical, theological, and scientific investigation. That's the way to do it, by the way. That led him, of course, straight to the Christian faith. He's authored several books, including Apocalypse Later, Why the Gospel of Peace Must Trump the Politics of Prophecy in the Middle East, Saving Truth in Grand Central Station, and more recently, More Than a White Man's Religion, which he's been on recently, and we talked about a couple topics from that book. What the Bible has to say about slavery, as well as women in the church. And that's a good one if you haven't heard that episode. He is also the founder and president of the Embrace the Truth organization. Welcome back, Abdu.
1: Ken, it's great to be with you, man. Thanks again for having me.
0: Abdu declare. That's right. You've probably heard that before, right? It just popped in my head.
1: I have never heard that. You, you know, you're actually the first person. That's actually the first time <laughs> someone's done that. Um, no, I'm, and I'm, I'm, in all seriousness, um, I get a lot of jokes about my name, um, uh, but you're the first one. The you
0: first know, one. I shouldn't bring a guest on and immediately joke about their name, but um, I feel well, like I can. Good, I've you,
1: been here so. before, so you, you, That's you, right. now we're so familiar that you can go ahead and make fun of me all you want.
0: Yeah, I'm obviously <laughs> feeling too comfortable. I don't know. Maybe I'll edit that out, but it struck me as funny. Being raised Muslim was typical. That was part of your culture, your surrounding, your family. What even led you to begin to think about considering something other than what your comfort zone was?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I started off actually trying to knock the faith out of anybody who wasn't a Muslim and then, in, and then put Islam into the um, into the void that I had created, of course. Um, so, I was raised uh, in a suburb of Detroit where there was, there was not a lot of Muslims. There was just not a lot. Um, now there's a ton. It's actually a very diverse area, ethnically and religiously. But um, back in the 80s and in the 90s, it was still fashionable to say you were a Christian, even if you didn't mean it. And um, so people would say, Oh, I'm a Christian. And I'd say, Well, what does that mean? Actually, what I would ask them is the question, Why are you a Christian? And um, they would say something along the lines of, I don't know, we go to the Presbyterian church on Christmas and Easter, so I'm a Presbyterian? I'm like, well, I don't know. Was that a question or was that an answer? I'm not even sure you know why you're that thing. So I started to say to them, are you telling me that you trust your eternal soul to a worldview that someone else has thought through, but you haven't thought through it? And they're like, no, you didn't think through matters of faith and religion? I'm like, well, yeah, of course you can. And by the way, I've thought through your religion for you. Here's uh, 15 reasons why you're wrong. Um, And I would start to launch into issues about the the Bible and it's been changed and corrupted. But that's important because Muslims actually believe that God has revealed parts of the Bible by name, certain parts of the Bible. But then it became corrupted over time such that the Quran, the holy book of the Muslims, needed to be revealed. I would start to launch into my attacks on the Bible, but also the incarnation of Christ that, you know, Jesus can't be God. That's horribly blasphemous and that denigrates God's greatness. The trinity i would say the trinity makes no sense how can you possibly believe this thing um and the cross i thought was the biggest insult because you know the, the central framework i operated from is a very islamic framework which is you hear the phrase all the time you hear it now in the um in the news especially with all that's been going on we hear a muslim say allahu akbar and whenever you hear someone say that you know something terrible happens but the reality is most muslims say that phrase peaceful Muslims who are not interested in blowing up the place. They're just peaceful Muslims who are looking to live the American dream and move on with their lives. They say this phrase too, all the time. In fact, the phrase is so important that it's got a name. In Arabic, the name for the phrase, Allahu Akbar, is takbir. Um, It literally means God is greater. So for the Muslim, and for me, God's greatness was the most important part of what it meant to follow Islam, because I thought Islam extolled and explained God's greatness whereas other religious faiths tried to, but Christianity in particular uh, failed because the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the Cross all insulted God's greatness. So I made it my my goal, not in an angry way, more in a conversational way, to get people who weren't Muslims to see that if they wanted to worship a God who was truly great, they should turn to Islam and do so. Well, as I said before, I tell Christians, you know, tradition shouldn't be a reason you believe something. It should be believed because it's true. And that was right, I was right to say that. But um, two guys come to the apartment complex I was living at at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and they were preaching the gospel to me. And I was talking to them and and frankly, we were engaging in hours long conversations, weeks on end. And they um, challenged me, I challenged them back, but I really wanted these guys to become Muslims. So I begin to look at the Bible to find a contradiction in that Bible. and uh, Here's where the story, here's what got me going on this. I wanted to find a contradiction in the Bible. Again, so I'm reading this Bible, not wanting to believe a thing it says. But um, I come across Luke chapter 3, verse 7 and the following verses as well. And John the Baptist is baptizing people. And they, he says to them, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Meaning, of course, God's judgment. And then he says something remarkable. He says, do not even begin to think to yourself, you have Abraham as your father, as if that would save them. You know, their lineage would save them. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. That struck me because what John the Baptist is saying is that your tradition does not save you. Truth is what saves you. Why that irritated me was because I was saying the same thing to Christians. No Christian had ever bothered or had had a chance to ask me, why are you a Muslim? And had they done that, I would have given them some, you know, lines about why I thought the Quran was God's word and all that stuff. Um, But the real fundamental reason was because I was raised that way. And I had to be because that's my heritage. That's my lineage. And so I was getting mad at Christians, not getting mad, but criticizing Christians for believing something because of tradition. But that was my real reason. I want you to note something is that the Bible is the book that got me thinking about the real motivations for my own belief. So the very book I was criticizing as being corrupted over time was used by God to get into the hands of a skeptic like me to actually speak to me and challenge me on my motivations. So that started the journey. I thought to myself, I'm going to believe something not because it's tradition, but because it's true. I was fully confident Islam would win, but um, I wanted to be as objective as I possibly could. And that's what really began the journey. It it started a little bit before that, but more on a curiosity level. But the real honest, earnest journey of trying to find out what is true and what faith um, really talks about who God is and if, does God even exist started then. I wanted to know if it was true, not just tradition.
0: And you can come to a place where apologetically you're like, you know, this faith is true. This lines up. Do you get a place, to where you felt it was true? I mean, that you had an encounter with God that you hadn't had as a Muslim.
1: Yeah, um, there, did, there did come a place. Remember what I said, right? So I said that Allahu Akbar, God is greater. That is the single most important goal uh, or the belief it's in Islam. All other beliefs are subservient to that fundamental belief. Um, there came a time, it took nine years, um, there came a time when I realized that the things I was hoping were true in Islam, I found to be really true in the gospel. So remember what I said about God being the greatest possible being? Well, whether it's the Trinity or the incarnation, these things actually demonstrate God's greatness. And there's a number of reasons why that is. But the thing that really got me was the cross itself. I thought the cross insulted God's greatness, but then I realized something. If God is the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic. And if, if he didn't, he wouldn't be the greatest possible being. What makes a being great is is, is his ethics, um, amongst other things. So he would have to express the greatest possible ethic. Well, what is the greatest possible ethic? It's obviously love. And so if he expresses the greatest possible ethic, he would have to do it in the greatest possible way. Otherwise, he would be a half-baked God, like, like Hercules or Achilles or some version of these kind of things or Osiris, or one of these god, demigods kind of a thing. No, if he's the greatest possible being, then he would express the greatest possible ethic in the greatest possible way. Well, what is the greatest possible way to express love? When you, when you just look at it, and the CliffsNotes version is, it's obviously self-sacrifice. You can do a lot of things that are loving, but until you sacrifice for someone, until you do something that hurts you, but for their sake, um, you haven't really expressed love in a true, true fashion. Um, in Islam, there is no such thing as a God who sacrifices, but in the gospel, it's the central thing. And so what I was hoping to be true about God in one worldview ended up being actually true about God in the Christian worldview, in the very worldview I was hoping wasn't true, but ended up being actually true. And when I realized that, and you see it, by the way, I remember where I was when I read it, Romans chapter five, verse, verse eight. For God demonstrates his love, his greatest possible love, in that while we were sinners, those who hate God, Christ died for us. Greatest possible being, greatest possible ethic, greatest possible expression of it. Um, He didn't just die for those who love him. He died for those who hate him, to transform them into those who love him. And it seems to me that the kind of God who would not only sacrifice, but take on the very enemy of humanity, death itself, and our sin, Is the kind of God who's worth believing.
0: Turning the conversation a bit to these three messiahs, we can Mm -hmm. start with the Islam version. And from my layman's view, I'm aware that there's different, whether you're Shiite or Sunni, there may be a different understanding of what that means. But I think you were starting to allude to that they believe this has become corrupt, Mm -hmm. our scriptures. And how does that play into a coming Islamic messiah?
1: Yeah, so the, great question, um, and yeah, I do appreciate your, your your understanding of the subtlety between the different sects within Islam, whether it's Shia, Sunni, there's also sects within Sunnism or Shiism where they have some differing understandings as well, whether it's Seveners or Twelvers or Ismailis or whatever it is on the Shia side and other things uh, on the Sunni side. Essentially, let me just boil it down to sort of the essentials, is that um the Muslim faith, the Islamic faith would teach that God is, um, that, that Jesus is, a, will return. He actually does return, but he returns as the, essentially the general or the leaders, the commander of the armies of believers against the armies of the unbelievers. That Jesus will die in a battle with those unbelievers, but then he will rise up again, be raised to life, um, like all of us eventually will. Because Muslims do believe in a bodily resurrection. Of the of generally not the not of not of Jesus but of people generally and then Jesus in terms of having died in that war, but the one who is actually the Messiah in in the sense of the one who will establish the Islamic rule on Earth forever is not the not a Messiah in a strict sense. So the word Messiah, of course, comes from the Hebrew "mashiach," anointed one. Um, and while Jesus is called in the, in the Quran, Jesus is called Isa. Isa is not really the Arabic way to say his name. Um, it's really Yasua, but the, the Quranic way to say Jesus's name is Isa, but he's called Isa al Messiah You can see the word Messiah right in there, right? So it's al Messiah Um, this, this. The thing is, though, is that the Quran never actually, and Islamic sources never actually define what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Al-Masiyah means the Messiah. So there's no real definition of this word or understanding of what it means to be the Messiah in terms of Jesus. However, Islam does have an, have a figure called the Mahdi, M-E-H-D-I typically spelled. The Mahdi is, um, depending on which Muslim you ask, has a figure is a figure who either returns after a, a, a period of long occultation where he's been hidden for, for, for centuries. He's alive, but he's been hidden for centuries. Or he's a different figure altogether. And he comes and he, um, again, leads the armies um, of the the, the believers in, in Islam against the armies of the un to vanquish them forever and establish an Islamic rule on earth forever. Um, such that God's paradise essentially becomes... Um, to all fruition on the earth. Now, what's interesting is Jesus, in the in that instance, actually does have roles. When Jesus comes back, he not only leads the armies of believers in, in the battle, but he also in that battle, again, depending on the Muslim you ask, destroys all crosses um, and symbols of the crucifixion, kills all the pigs, which is just really sort of a interesting detail, um, and establishes prayer you know, among the Muslim nation called the Ummah, um, but then he dies, and then he raises up again. And the Mahdi is the one who actually is the the ultimate leader, human, a human leader, um, not divine, but a human leader uh, of the Muslims. So that's the Islamic version. It's got there's got a lot, there's a lot of wars, obviously, and you, depending on which Christian you ask, there's a lot of wars in Christian eschatology as well. Um, but you have Jesus not coming to end all wars, but to use a war to end all wars.
0: And is it correct that pretty much the Jesus comes back and says? That scripture had been corrupted, how it came about, how we read it now isn't true, and that Islam is true. Yeah, yeah you're
1: right. Uh, in fact, in the Quran, actually says that Jesus has already said that back when he was here 2,000 oh. years ago. And he's just going to repeat it, but with force. Right.
0: Because it seems like, in general at least, if not specifically, the, the Mahdi and then the return of Jesus... In the christian realm seems very similar like they have their hero is our villain that the mahdi almost seems to be what we would see as an antichrist figure and then there's like a false prophet a religious figure that helps give him and sustain his power and helps the world accept him i don't know if it's that simple but it just seems to be kind of parallel Well,
1: well i could definitely see that from depending on which perspective from a christian perspective you're talking about now Without getting te- hyper-technical, you know, Christians often think that the the real debate within Christian eschatology is when the rapture happens. You know, is it pre-, mid-, or post-trib, or tribulation for the uninitiated, um, that there'll be this period of tribulation, a seven-year period of tribulation, and the debate amongst Christians is whether or not the church gets raptured or taken out of the earth before the tribulation happens, in the middle of the tribulation, or after that seven-year period of tribulation, and then Jesus comes back and establishes a millennium and all this th- um, now, the reason I bring all this up is because your question is a good one, um, but it also presupposes um, one particular version of eschatology. That debate, pre, mid, and post-trib, is one debate within one strand of Christian eschatology called right. um, premillennial dispensationalism. But then there's dispensa—there's there's actually uh, premillennialism, which is not dispensational, and then there's amillennialism and postmillennialism, and then there's a thing called preterism those are actually older in Christian theology than dispensational premillennialism. Um, the reason I say that, not because I'm not saying any one of them is right or wrong, the point is is that there's actually, a, and, and those other ones, by the way, those other views, prem, uh, amillennialism, postmillennialism, preterism, they don't even have a rapture. Um, right. And they don't have any sense of an antichrist so much as they interpret John's words in for, in his first, le- his first letter as not being about a, an antichrist but someone who is antichrist like it's a position not a not a person yeah or so, if there
0: was one of them would be that it was an early roman emperor
1: yeah um,
0: and it's, yeah. this has already all pretty much happened already
1: right and that's the preterist view for example amongst others so i i say that not again to to say one's right or one's wrong i'm just saying that we have to appreciate the differences within christian eschatology and not assume that um, probably the most um, popular version, which sells you know, books and ends up being in movies, that's usually premillennial dispensationalism. Um, so now let's assume that that's true, that it is that way. Um, one could argue that that's what you have happening here is that it looks like there's a figure gonna arise and one religion has predisposed people to accepting him as a deliverer, um, which is how they get deceived. Um, so that's interesting.
0: What also would be interesting is if that more popular version is not true and that it's more symbolic or it's already happened in the past or whatever, then you have two other religions that their eschatology seems very similar, but Christianity already happened. Yeah. Uh, it just seems more interesting that all three stories kind of line up with the same characters, but with different roles, depending on the perspective.
1: Well, yeah. And, and the interesting part of it is that they all share a root in one sense. Now, I'm not saying they're all the same because they're not. Um, but they share a root. Um, when you look at the development of Islam, for example, you see Jesus appears as a prophetic figure. He's a prophet, nothing more than that. He's a, prophet, he's a prophetic figure and he will return. That sounds similar to Christianity, except that they divest him of a divinity. There's no sense in which Jesus is actually a savior. He's just a figure who tells us to go back to true Islam and obey God's commands. Um, but Islam is very law-based. A lot of the dietary restrictions, a lot of the prayer restrictions, a lot of the stuff actually looks very much like the Mosaic law. So they, 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 instead of having a new covenant under the, the blood of the lamb, because the, blood, the lamb's blood, meaning Jesus, has never been shed, you wouldn't have to go back. You, you can't go back. You, you, sorry, you can't have a new covenant. You have to revert back to the old covenant of law. So in, son, in one sense, which is terribly ironic, but, you know, you know when you look at the way um, Jews and Arabs have been at war for so long, they're so similar if you look at their actual religious practices. Um, it's really quite interesting. Um, so you get a messianic sense of certain things in Islamic theology, both from a Christian perspective and a Jewish perspective. Um, so you wouldn't be surprised to see similarities, even with the Mahdi, um, and the role of Jesus. The Jews, of course, don't really see the Messiah um, in the same way necessarily under this new covenant of dying for the sins of the world um, as Christians might, but they do see it similar in one sense, that there is a Messiah, that role is quite defined. You look at you know Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, you see a bunch of different places where Ezekiel's got plenty of things. Daniel, of course, has references to a Messiah, one like a son of man, who sits at the right hand, whose who's coming is from old and everlasting, whose kingdom will have no end. You see a lot of this stuff. Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 7, for example, is a messianic passage. So you see a lot of this stuff, but what Jews actually believe the Messiah to be is a coming Davidic king, someone in the line of David, who, is, who shares literally David's lineage, um, genetically, actually comes from his line, not symbolically, but genetically. And that he um <clears throat> sets the world to right. He delivers Israel from all of her enemies. He establishes a nation of Israel through whom all the people of the world will be blessed. There'll be an established kingdom. it'll be forever and ever. And there'll be peace when the Messiah comes. Once the enemies of Israel are vanquished, peace will reign forever. And you know there'll be all kinds of harmony and justice and and love will be the reign and all this stuff. And that'll be the 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 paradigm of future existence. So it's, it's great, right? I mean, it's fantastic. Um, so that's essentially, um, I'm boiling down a lot of Jewish thought, because you can look at the Talmud and the Midrash and the Mishnah and find a lot written about the Messiah. Um, those are, of course, books that are outside the Bible. Um,
0: well, let, let me ask you about that. Yeah. The books outside the Bible, doesn't that kind of confuse the issue in that their interpretations and thoughts of different, rabbis through the years, this and that, that kind of becomes extra-biblical sources and maybe muddles what the expectation of the Messiah is, as opposed to pure scriptural, prophetical word.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because a lot of Jewish thinking, when it comes to actual interpretation of the, the Tanakh, the five books of Moses, the Ketubim, the the writings and you know in terms of like the, the prose and the psalms and these kind of things and of course the the prophets the minor prophets that follow um, a lot of times it's it, the the understanding is transmitted through authority which is a very middle eastern way to do things yes yeah, so you transmit it not through direct interpretation but through the authority of that interpretation and who is qualified to interpret it that's what you get a lot of now the reason why i say that is because that's where you get the talmud the talmud is a book it's not one book. It's a series of writings that um, is far in excess in terms of its sheer volume of the of the Bible of the of the Old Testament. It's far in excess of it. Um, and what you have is you have various scholars of different schools of thought interpreting almost every word of the Bible um, from a, from a certain kind of a lens. And what does this word mean exactly? And why is this word? If there's a vagary. Um, in, the, in the Bible where things seem to change or there is a sense in which something is um, ambiguous, there's all kinds of interpretations, you know. And around the Messianic scriptures, there's plenty of room for interpretation. So for example, Isaiah chapter 53, where it says in verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, smitten by God. Uh, yet we've seen him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, a lot of the rabbis would say, originally to say, that's actually the Messiah. Now, what ends up happening in the Talmud, in the Midrash, and in the Mishnah, and different, different other biblical texts, they started to interpret it after the Christian movement. They interpreted it as, no, that, that's not really the Messiah, that's Israel. That's a re- reference to Israel herself, the actual nation of Israel. Which, of course, is not true, and even the earliest rabbis didn't think so. But my point in sharing this with you is to affirm your question. Is that all those extra biblical things are an attempt to clarify what the Bible says, but because so many you know, you know the how the phrase goes uh, too many too many chefs spoil the soup um is that there's so much going on here that the sheer level of interpretation leads to so many different possibilities of what it could mean. So yeah, um there's a lot of different interpretations of that. Having said that, what's really interesting is, and I did this in my in my in my first book, I, I talked about this about what did the Jews expect um, the Messiah to be around Jesus's time. Um, since then, they've had different ideas now because you know, of the sort of schism relationally between Christians and Jews, especially when the earliest Christians were in fact Jews and there wasn't a whole lot of schism to begin with, but because of and after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, there was a lot. Um, but before that, there were two expectations of who the Messiah might be. Um, There was Messiah ben David, in other words, Messiah, son of David, which was a a Davidic king who was going to come and vanquish all the enemies of Israel. And of course, at Jesus's time, the expectation was that the Messiah would vanquish the Romans and the Roman occupation. But then there was also an understanding of, um, it was a minority opinion at the time, but there was an an understanding of a, a different Messiah called Messiah ben Joseph. And of course, the story of Joseph is one of tremendous suffering, but deliverance through that suffering sold into slavery, all these things, and thrown into prison, etc. So there was Messiah ben David, the coming king with authority, the military king. Then there was Messiah ben Joseph, who was the suffering servant. Um, and so in Jesus's time, the question became, who is the Messiah going to be like? Is he going to be Messiah ben David or Messiah ben Joseph? And what Jesus does as his first coming as the Messiah is say, yes, it's both he is going to be, he is the king who defeats death but he does it through suffering but ultimately he will be the davidic king that, which will which will establish god's peace and justice and rule for all time upon his second coming when the messiah comes again
0: for those listening that haven't dug into this or don't kind of know the difference between judaism and christianity mm-hmm. this is my quick summary is that i still consider myself a believer in the Jewish religion, as was mentioned by the early church, the early believers, people just thought it was a different—Christianity was a new sect of Judaism. They called it the Way, because everything Christians believe is the Old Testament. It's just that we believe this person was the coming Messiah mm-hmm. that the Jews produced. It's not a different religion. In our view, it's the fulfillment of Judaism. And that everything in the Old Testament primarily, well, according to Jesus' own words, was written for him, by him, about him. And it was all a foreshadowing, a physical foreshadowing of a spiritual reality and a kingdom to come. That, um, you know, Moses would lead people out of physical slavery and there would be a Messiah who would lead people out of spiritual slavery or sin. Mm -hmm. So having said that, would it be true then that the Jews who are waiting for their Messiah today are expecting this messiah you mentioned like more of a military david figure which by the way christians also believed it was a physical bloodline to david Mm -hmm. uh in that that we're not moving forward to a spiritual dimension and we're just waiting jesus was the wrong one there's another one but they're thinking Mm -hmm. this one will bring them back to levitical law and sacrificial sacrifices by a third temple Is that a main belief of Judaism, or is that like a sect of Orthodox Jews that think a Messiah will—we need a third temple so that we can reinstitute the law, the sacrifices, and that they see that old covenant as the the end-all, be-all, that this is um, God on earth. I mean, this is the kingdom.
1: Yeah. So I think that there are—that is a sect of Orthodox Judaism, or maybe even conservative Judaism— That would say something along those lines. And I think that there would be some subtlety and differences between those different viewpoints about what and exactly what are the nuances of how such a Messiah would actually come and do what he is going to do militarily and vanquish the enemies of Israel as well. Um, Whether it it results in a new third temple or it results in no more need for sacrifice because um, people have been cleansed, etc., There's different views on that but essentially what you have is a messiah who will usher in who will like i said destroy the um all oppression and enemies um and who will establish israel as a both literal and figurative or 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 spiritual kingdom on earth um where there'll be peace and justice and all these kind of things that's one of the reasons why people have actually a lot many jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah because they said that when the Messiah comes, this is all going to happen. And that clearly didn't happen with Jesus because the Romans weren't vanquished, but the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Um, and there's no peace on earth and no lasting peace and all these kind of things. So, what did Jesus really do? And of course, Jesus is answering them when he says, Remember what I said, I'm both the, the suffering servant messiah ben joseph and messiah ben david the one you guys have been waiting for is both of these people actually you're just waiting you you just think it's one swoop where the messiah does it once but maybe the messiah does it in stages um or in various facets that are a little more um subtle than you might actually realize so they do expect that like you said but i would say that that's more orthodox or conservative jews now this is this bears this bears uh, mentioning um when you when you went into a Jewish person, just because they're Jewish doesn't mean they're religious. Jewishness is an identity. And they may even read the Tanakh and go to synagogue and all these things, but the idea that God is a part of their lives is far from them because it isn't the religion and the creed that's important. It's the deed that's important. In other words, Judaism creates a sense of cultural wholeness or unity. um, It's a sense of morality and these kind of things. So uh, don't assume that every Jew you run into, even if they're very proud of being Jewish, is actually religious in any sense of the word, that we would come to think. They might not not even believe in God at all. I know plenty of agnostic or atheist Jews who are pretty serious about being Jews, but they don't believe that God exists or they're doubtful about it. Now that comes as a shock to many ears, but that's actually a very common experience.
0: Yeah. it's, It's confusing to people I talk to because I mean, what other race is defined? They have the same name for their racial identity as they do for their religion. Right. So if you bail out of your religion, you're still Jewish. And that's very confusing to people. If you're Irish, that doesn't mean you're Catholic. It could.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't
0: mean it. But when you're Jewish, it's very confusing to say, I'm Jewish, but I don't follow Judaism, you know.
1: Right. Or or, or they, they 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 have what's called the Reform Judaism or more of a liberal Judaism, where it's more the morality and the tradition that, that, is, that is held. In other words, God was the glue as a figurative idea, was the glue that held this morality and this culture together. So whether it's r- true or not isn't relevant, but in terms of God's existence, but that God's existence, belief in God's existence is what they needed back then to hold the glue together. But now we use the, the Bible as a guide on how mm-hmm. to hold our community together. Um, culturally speaking. So that's the experience. The reason why it's so foreign to Christians is because creed and deed are inseparable.
0: So we've specifically talked about um, Jewish Messiah, Islamic Messiah, and then we hinted around a Christian Messiah coming, but didn't really hit it. So what we're talking about there is a return of the Christian Messiah.
1: Now, of course, it depends on what you mean by the word Christian. I know what I mean when I say it, um, but other folks might mean something different. It um, doesn't mean that, there's, that Christianity is a relativistic a faith. It's not. I think that there are those who would say they hold to a Christian ethic or a Christian understanding, but largely symbolic. Um, much like Jews might say, I'm a Jew, but I don't really believe in God. There are people who yeah. say, well, God is a good idea, or maybe God exists. But whether Jesus really walked on water, whether Jesus really rose from the dead, that isn't rel- that, that's not relevant. It's the message of love and joy and, and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the important. Um, so there are those. Um, and they don't really have an eschatology in that sense or a coming idea of what a Messiah really is. Jesus delivers us from sin by being a good example, in other words. Um, <clears throat> the good news is that's a minority position. Um, and I think a mere orthodoxy, and I don't mean like Eastern orthodoxy or Greek orthodoxy, I mean a mere orthodoxy, uh, orthodoxy in the sense of believing what it is that Jesus actually taught, taking it um, literal where intended and figurative where intended, you have what's called, what C.S. Lewis would call the mere Christianity, which is that, part of which is that Jesus dies on a cross to save us from our sins rises from the dead three late days later to prove that he has power over death uh, and that our physical resurrection will follow just like his physical resurrection and that he will return and establish an everlasting kingdom of physical resurrection with a physical heaven where we'll have physical bodies but they will not be merely physical there'll be spirit dominated and um, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and it'll be like that forever and ever and we'll have intimacy with god so the most, the, the, in, in Christian faith, in that mere Christianity kind of way, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, Orthodox or otherwise, in whatever other denomination within those three strands you might find yourself, um, there is a sense in which, Jesus, not a sense in which, there's a belief, a fund, fo- foundational belief that the Messiah actually came 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And what that means is that God himself incarnates in in, in human flesh. He he takes on human skin, as it were. He takes on human flesh. And so Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And that's how the Messiah comes. And that's based on interpretations from Isaiah 53 and Psalms um, and the understanding of what the Messiah would be like. Daniel chapter 7 is another good example where the Son of Man is the messianic figure and he is one from old and everlasting whose kingdom has no end and so he has no beginning which and only one one being has no beginning and that's god and so the messiah looks divine when you read the old testament and then jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies about the messiah in that he is the incarnate god the son but with human nature he's the son of god and he fulfills all the sacrificial laws that were in the Old Testament. So in other words, we were under the yoke of the law because of our sinfulness. And so we had to shed the blood of animals in order to have that sin propitiated temporarily because we're higher creatures than animals. And so our sin is far graver, but no animal can stand in my place because no animal is as good or as, um, as elevated of a nature as me. So it can't sit in my place permanently. It can only be a type and shadow of the the kind of redemption that is to come. That's why we need to have sacrifices over and over again. But um, the Bible in the Old Testament looks forward to a day when there will be no no need for sacrifice because an ultimate sacrifice has been made. Isaiah 53 um, is is the culmination of that. Where he is pierced for our transgressions, he's he's crushed for our iniquities um, and the chastisement his chastisement is what brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. That's a prophecy of what the Messiah is to go through. Psalm 22 as well, you see that the Messiah is, is pierced, His in his hands and his feet, um, and they cast lots for his clothing and all these things. These are, these are prophecies about the coming Messiah. And so Jesus, as a man, the incarnate, can stand in our place and be, therefore be judged in our place. But because he's fully righteous, and only God can be fully righteous, he also um, has no sin of his own to bear. And so the Messiah is the one who delivers us, not by vanquishing our enemies, because we are in fact the enemies of God, but by paying for our sins, transforms us into looking like his son. In other words, God sees his righteousness is imputed to us, and therefore we look like Jesus to God. That's that's our deliverance. And we no longer have any penalty for death. And so there's two comings of the Messiah. The first one is to establish the new covenant, is to deal with sin once and for all by paying on the cross what we all deserve to pay and arising from the dead to prove that he could do it and giving that resurrection life and power to us. So that Paul says, who is a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, says essentially that, that resurrection power that brought Jesus to life is the power of power that lives in us. And just as His physical body was sown in corruption into the ground after being brutalized, it is raised incorruptible, and that's how our bodies will be. Um, so that's the first coming. The second coming of the Messiah is when all of this culminates, and it's all whatever timing God has. The fullness of time has come, and all things will be set right because Jesus will return. And Jesus, when he does that, will establish a kingdom. However complicated that is, depending on your strand of belief within Christianity, he will He will establish a kingdom that will reign forever and ever. And we will explore God um, and understand him, have intimacy with him forever. So we'll have an infinite amount of time to explore the infinite God, which will will be in a perpetual novelty. It will, it will never get old. It will always be novel and always new. Um, and we'll be experiencing this world with uncorrupt bodies which means that we'll be able to do things we were intended to do, but never able to do because of the sin that corrupts us. So the Messiah has a delivery from sin and then a, then the establishment of a kingdom. He does both of those things.
0: So I was just talking recently with someone, um, doesn't have a lot of Bible knowledge, but a, bel- a believer, mm-hmm. and um, about the three Messiahs and not familiar with any of them. Mm-hmm. And I... And the response was uh, pretty typical as, um, I find this terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> because you're talking about some, an end to something or the beginning of something, the unknown, or this is yeah. too much information. It's scary. Um, <clears throat> in the New Testament, it said to encourage, when talking about the coming of Christ, to encourage each other with these words. So in in a, to wrap this up, somebody at that kind of level of understanding what, what's like a 30, 60 second response of where is the hope as a believer to soon anticipate a return of Christ, which the church has been called to do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So here, 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 it it comes down to really this. There's a new heavens and a new earth, which is established. Um, And there will be no more death. The, The Bible says specifically, there will be no more death and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So everything in this life that besets us, that causes us pain, that sets us back, that, that um, constantly plagues us and haunts us, whether it's pain we've caused or pain that we've caused others, all of that will be set right and they will not exist anymore. It will not be something that sets us back. So this newness that comes from the old passing away, what passes away in the old is that which we hate anyway, that which is decay and, and things that fall apart. So all of your passions, all the things you love, all the people you love, you will love them and know them better than you've ever known them before and completely and unselfishly. All the things that you hope for and care about will all be so new and fresh and perpetually new and fresh. That's why the Bible says not to fear this, but to welcome it and to pray for it. For eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man that which God has prepared for those who love him which means that whatever you're worried about, it won't be bad. Whatever you're hoping for, it'll be so much better than that. So whatever's entering into your ear or entering into your heart or trying to be something you see, heaven and the new earth and the new and the new new creation will be so much better than that. Um, all the things you wish were true will be infinitely better than even the things you wish, you wish for. It's a hope. It really is a hope to have all the things that plague us and hold us back. The reins are off. And we're living in freedom, incorruptible, without corruption whatsoever. And God himself will be our light. Counted among the outlaws, he said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws.